Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 47 of the book of Genesis. If you're just new here, I've been about a year and a half in the book of Genesis, so we're, we're finishing up. We're getting there. Uh, and then we're going to move to the book of Colossians. The last, I don't know, 15 chapters, 14, 15 chapters, largely surround uh, Joseph. And so I've kind of titled all of these sermons, The Saga of Joseph, uh, subtitled The Blessing for Today. How do unbelievers around you view the church? Some despise the church as a promoter of outdated or even dangerous ideas. But I would say that the vast majority of people see the church as largely irrelevant a distraction to the more important issues of life. And if we are not careful, our opinion of the church will be more influenced by the world around us than by the word of God. The church is made up of all who profess faith in Jesus Christ and their children. The outward sign of belonging to Jesus Christ is baptism into his name what we call the corporate or the institutional church, is the gathering of these believers into a body for the purpose of worship and fellowship and discipleship and evangelism and service. So y'all are the church. Thank you, Benji, for your prayers today. That was nice to think about those issues, fellowship and service and preaching. I mean, it's just really nice. This gathering of God's people together into a cohesive unit, a corporate unit, is very much like what God did with Jacob's children as they grew into one nation while they were living in Egypt. Old Testament Israel and New Testament church are two branches joined to the same root, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect king of Israel's dreams, what they look forward to, the promised Messiah, and Jesus is the perfect king ruling over us here today in his church. The point is this, if you're going to understand this text of Scripture today, Throughout all of history, Jesus has been building a people for himself. We call it the church. We could say the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. And this church is the bride of Christ. That's who she is. Now, if you understand this, I'll ask these rhetorical questions, but they're pretty obvious. Do you think Jesus' opinion of the church is in conflict with the opinion of the world? Yes. Does Jesus view the church as outdated? No. Does he view the church as irrelevant? No. 
And love doesn't make Jesus blind to the realities of the imperfections. I know that every church that has ever existed is full of imperfections and all kinds of warts and abnormalities. I know she's not perfect. It's not like he's blind to all those. But he is constantly working by his word and spirit to purify his people into who he wants them to be. And his love for the church is steadfast. He remains fixed upon her. Every other institution of the world is irrelevant compared with the church. It's the exact opposite. The church is who he delights in. The church is the apple of Jesus' eye. And I believe that it is this truth which is worked out in Genesis 47. Genesis 47 is the working out of one specific promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And I'm not going to read you all of the promises made to, to Abraham there. I'm just going to read one particular blessing. He says to Abraham, I will bless you, and those, oh, wait a minute, I will bless those who bless you. That's the statement I want you to think. I, God, saying to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. The verse goes on, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, God might have said to Abraham, I'm blessing you because you're believing in me, and all who believe in me will also be blessed. That would be a true statement. Could have just focused on, believe in God, you get blessing. But that's not the way God says it. He says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. You see, God is building a people on earth. And God wants the rest of the world to treat his people well. And so he gives this promise. I think it's difficult for you to believe that today. I think it's really difficult to believe how important the church is in God's eyes. I also think it would have been very difficult for Jacob to believe it. And you're going to see today how he continues to cling to the importance of this truth. You see, Jacob, we learned last week, is nothing more than a 70-person little blip on the pages of history at this point. If you were to go back to a secular textbook, they have no idea that this 70 people came down from Canaan down to Egypt. It's not even included. Now, you can go to your history books and you will read about Egypt. But you will not read about this 70 people. Later on, the history books will talk about Israel, but not now. By every human standard, Israel needs blessing from Egypt. No one would ever think, humanly speaking, that Egypt needs blessing from Israel. It is almost unthinkable to believe that Egypt's future blessing depends on how she treats this little group of 70 people. But that's precisely the point of this story. Pharaoh, in this story, is going to show incredible blessing to Jacob and his family. 
And as a consequence of that, God is going to abundantly bless Pharaoh. Later on in Egypt's history, Egypt will oppressively put Israel into slavery, a different Pharaoh. And it's not by accident that God will bring ten plagues upon Egypt at that time and crush Pharaoh's army in the bottom of the Red Sea. You see, Genesis 47 is God establishing a truth. And this truth is, I will bless those who bless you. The story picks up after the reunion of Joseph with his family. Now Joseph is going to present his family to Pharaoh. So 47 verses 1 through 4. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men, presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Even though earlier Pharaoh had commanded Joseph to bring his family down, there still has to be some uncertainty as to what, when they get right before them, will he actually follow through and bless them? Will he be okay with them actually dwelling in the best land of Egypt, the land of Goshen? You know, pharaohs can change their minds. And now that Joseph's brothers are standing in front of them, he may not like their looks. He may not like their occupation. Remember, Egyptians hate shepherds. What's going to happen? And it's interesting that Joseph only presents five of his brothers. Is he trying to make them look too large? Did he pick the best brothers, the worst brothers? We don't know. But he picks five. And they are standing before Pharaoh. These five brothers had to feel small. They felt small before Joseph. Now they're in front of Pharaoh. They had to know that their welfare, humanly speaking, rested on whether this ruler would treat them well. Verses 5 and 6. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Pharaoh could not have been more generous. He follows through on his promise. He gives them the best of the land. And even though Egyptians don't like shepherds, they think they're the lowest rung on the totem pole, they have to have some shepherds because they have their own flocks. And so they actually, hey, why don't you take care of our shepherds? I mean, our our flocks. He's giving them all that he could possibly give them. Now what remains is whether God will be able to pour out his blessing upon Pharaoh. That's actually a question. The promise says... I will bless those who bless you. So the question is, will God bless Pharaoh who has blessed Jacob and his family? That's the question. And that's what we're going to see. Verses 7 to 10. 
Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before Pharaoh. Stood him before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning, 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This is actually a rather weird statement, in my opinion, as you read this. I also think it's somewhat odd that Joseph presents his brothers first and then he presents his dad. Now, there may have been cultural things going on there, but maybe there's more than just social etiquette. Maybe there is purposefully in this this story the presenting of the brothers so that we, we see Pharaoh blessing God's people and then you get Jacob's encounter so that you have this kind of standoff between these two rulers. One ruler of the greatest nation in the world and one ruler of this band of 70 people. Okay. Generally in the Bible, who blesses who? The greater or the lesser? The greater blesses the lesser, which is exactly what happened with Pharaoh and the brothers. But if you read in this story twice, at the very beginning and at the very end, we hear Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Rather odd. Some commentators actually say all he's doing is greeting him there. Like, God bless you, or something like that, you know, quickly, that we would say. But I think in terms of the story, we see how important the giving of the blessing is. In fact, chapters 48 and 49 are going to be all about Jacob giving blessing. He is about blessing. And I do think that there's a subtlety here, because if, if Jacob had walked in there and says, I'm the one who's greater than you, and so I will bless you. That would be very pompous. So I think he actually does this rather subtly. (laughs) So that the readers would know, and Pharaoh wouldn't be offended. I think that's what's happening. When asked of Jacob's age, he makes it very clear, because they valued people who lived to an old age, but he makes it very clear that personally, he's nothing to write home about. Now, we would say 130 years, that's pretty old. But in his time, he said, oh, my dad, my granddad lived a lot longer than me. I've lived 130 years, and guess what? The years that I have lived on this, on this earth have been few and evil. He doesn't just mean evil like morally evil. He means I've gone through hardship after hardship after hardship. And that's true of Jacob's life. And we're going to look at someone that you wanted to have their blessing of. Jacob would be not your choice. Now, I'm trying to illustrate this. I don't know if it's a great illustration. I'm certainly not trying to, to you know, diss anybody. But it would be like the President of the United States seeking a blessing from a homeless person. Is that who you would go to? To gain blessing from? Probably not. So, we have the pronouncement of blessing from Jacob, who's the head of the church. So we still have to see, will God actually follow through with that? Will he bring about this blessing? So we get to verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. 
So this is just basically a statement. Pharaoh followed through. Joseph followed through. You could look at it as God follows through. God takes care of his people. They are in a foreign land, and God is still taking care of them. He's providing for them. All of these things. What do you think happens to the citizens of Egypt and Canaan while Israel is experiencing great blessing? They actually go down. Verse 13, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Now, it's likely that this famine probably affected more than Canaan and Egypt, but like other surrounding nations, but Canaan and Egypt is all that matters to them right now. Canaan is the land of uh, the promised land, and Egypt's where they are. So those are the two nations that he comes up with. What you need to see is that even though everyone around them is languishing, God's people are being provided for. It's rather amazing. In the midst of this terrible famine, God's people are doing pretty well. Verse 14, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought, and Joseph bought brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now, so stage one, and I think there's five stages here, but stage one, Pharaoh goes from wealthy to being stinking rich. That's the way I would look at this, okay? Now, there is a way to look at this passage, and I've looked at it this way for a lot of time, long time. Is this even right? This doesn't seem ethically right. If you remember, Joseph actually filled all the storehouses from the Egyptians. Like they made their, their, their grain and he basically took 20% for the last seven years. The seven, and so he didn't buy that. He didn't buy it from the people. He just took it. And now he's actually requiring the people to buy back the food. So on an ethical level, I, I mean, this would be a great thing to talk about ethics, but that's not the point of this story, I'm convinced. The text is proclaiming God's faithfulness to his promise. Even in the midst of one of the worst famines ever, when everyone else is going down, God's people doing great. And the one person who blesses God's people, he's doing great too. 15 through 17. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. See, many of us would say, see, that's what happens. Give away your freedoms as soon as you need. Anyway, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Stage two, Pharaoh's blessing increases to include even the livestock. He not only has all the money now, but he has all the livestock that he owns. It's important in this story that all of this flows from the hand of Joseph. Right? Joseph is the one who's giving this to Pharaoh. It's very clear in the story. But this is not enough. 18 through 20. 
And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land, we will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. Stage three, Pharaoh's blessings now include all the land and all the people. Everyone is his servants. And I would assume that the all here does not include the Israelites. It's much later, another Pharaoh that subjects the Israelites. I think that's part of the reason why they do get subjected later, because they get all this special treatment now, and later on people get jealous of that. Anyway, so what usually happens. This is like asking to be put into slavery. Instead of going into prison or being killed because you don't, can't pay off your debts, they're actually saying, look, you can own us. Okay? Now again, the point is not that slavery is good, In fact, when you get to God's people in the promised land, there is no such thing as permanent slavery. You have the year of Jubilee where your debts go back and they're forgiven, and there's no such thing as permanent slavery. But that's not the point here. The point is, Pharaoh blessed Israel, and now Pharaoh is receiving everything for this. 21 and 22. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other, Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. I think this is an anticipation. Later on, there will be a a, uh, kind of a battle between Moses and the priests of Egypt. uh, And it's obvious here that the priests are honored, right? Pharaoh continues to honor the priests. It's obvious that Pharaoh does not actually embrace Abraham's God, he's just being kind to them, he's not necessarily changing his religion, any of those kind of things, and so you've got these priests that are still doing well. It will anticipate the great conflict later, where Moses will defeat them in all the the, uh, plagues. Now, 23 and 24, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest... You shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. Um, Stage four, Pharaoh's blessing includes the future blessing. It's not just momentary. It's something that's ongoing. And if you don't like this tax code, uh, the um, uh, common tax code of that day, we learned from other places, was about 33%. So So Joseph actually gives them a relatively low tax code, but they get it. Okay, oppressive or not, Joseph has provided for the future wealth of Pharaoh. He's done everything for him, except for maybe one thing. Verse 25, they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So here's the stage five. The people are still happy. In our day and age, if you'd gotten this deal, we would not be happy, would we? But the people are still happy. Can you imagine Pharaoh not only has been given all this blessing, he's got all this stuff, but his constituents are still happy. They're happy with it. Crazy. Really crazy. In fact, it just seems like this doesn't make any sense. 
26 and 27. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that would have been the day of Moses, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Can you see the utter contrast? While everyone else is becoming losing everything and becoming slaves, God's people are doing great. Okay? Kind of sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? <clears throat> now we come to the climax of this story. What is Jacob's response to all this blessing? 28 through 31. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob's life, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. Not good enough for Jacob. He said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had been this small band of people poor, needy, you come to this huge kingdom and, and all of the wealth of this kingdom has been focused to, to bless you and you become this wonderful, wealthy uh, people in the land of Egypt, would it not be tempting to see Pharaoh as the one in whom you'd place your trust? Pharaoh owns everything. I think he owns all of Canaan at this point. But when it comes time for Jacob to die, Jacob says, this is nothing. I don't care about this blessing. The blessing I care about is the one that God promised to Abraham, which is an eternal blessing. And he remains fixed upon that blessing rather than the temporal blessings of Egypt. Later on, Moses will be actually um, uh, uh, praised for the same thing when he leaves all the uh, riches of Pharaoh in order to side with God's people. Now, just so you understand, it's not, there's nothing magical about Jacob being buried up in Canaan. It is a symbolic statement. The rest of the 12 brothers besides Joseph, they all have their bones buried in Egypt. We don't even know where they are. It's, not, it's nothing magical about where you're buried. But it is very symbolic. Jacob is making a statement. I trust in the eternal promises that God has given to me, not the temporal wealth that I have right now. And so at the end, after he gets the sworn oath from his son, Israel bows himself upon the head of his bed. And lots of different thinking on that, but I think it's best taken that he is content and he just worships. He's a feeble old man at this time, and he's content now that he's gotten this oath. So how do we apply all this? Number one, God will bless those who bless Jesus Christ. All of the promises depend upon our faith in Jesus Christ. 
The blessing of Abraham is the blessing that Jesus has won in his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, the first way to apply this is that God blesses those who bless Jesus Christ. And one way to look at that is that you place your trust in Jesus Christ. You place all your hopes in Jesus Christ. You love Jesus Christ. That's the first way to apply this. And I would tell you here today, if you've not personally trusted in Jesus Christ, you should do so today. It's just a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, you are everything. I give myself to you and all my hopes for my redemption lie in you. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of his only son of God. All of these promises center in Christ. Christ is the number one thing. But as a side to this, and I think more direct to this passage, a reflexive consequence of loving Christ is to love what he loves. And what does he love? The church. Do you understand this? You cannot long love Jesus Christ without loving Christ's bride. We, as God's people, need to love the church. We can't depend on the world to love the church. We have to love her. Secondly, God will bless those who bless the church, Jesus' bride on earth. When Saul persecuted the church, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Jesus identifies with his people. He takes it very personally when someone outside of the church treats the people in his church poorly. Now, I know that we don't see that happening all the time. I know, in fact, Psalm 129, if you go back and read that from the, from the, worship, the order of worship, it's all about God's people saying, man, we're getting beaten down all the time. Until you get to the very end, and then it's like, oh, but you know what? That's not going to be the end. Because God is going to bless his people. All who are in Christ. Saints all over the world experience oppression and persecution at the hands of unbelievers. Whether it be in this life or in the judgment, it doesn't matter. God will curse those who curse his people. Period. And I would tell you, people mistreat the church as a corporate body and the individuals in the church. They treat them poorly to their own peril. somebody started messing with Robin, you better believe I'd be angry at them. We must, thirdly, we must continue to keep our eyes fixed on our eternal blessing. I know people often say about the American church, we've got so many temporal blessings, we've just gotten spoiled. I don't understand why America has received so many material blessings in this life. I don't have that all figured out, but I do know this. If you get your eyes fixed upon those temporal blessings rather than your eternal blessings, you're in trouble. We need to be like Jacob. Yes, he was blessed in this world. We experience blessings from our government. We experience blessings from our community, from our families, all those kind of things. But none of them even hold a candle to the fact that we have been recipient of all the blessings in Jesus Christ, our eternal blessings. 
So my encouragement to you, do not become enamored with the things of this world. God is the only source of your blessing. You are his eternal bride. Set your heart upon eternal blessings. Set your heart upon the the church and serving her and loving her. That's what matters in this life. And that's what God is teaching us through Genesis 47. Amen.